not been an easy book, or actually both of them. Um, and, and one of the things, hopefully if you've heard nothing else, one of the things that I'm going to continue to harp on over and over and over again is this. What does the text say? Not what I've been taught, not what I've always believed, but what does the text say? And wherever the text takes me is where I'll go. Number two is what does the text not say? And, and, and this is something that I think is missing in, in a lot of our uh, classes, I guess, or instruction on in, inter- biblical interpretation is, is we always look to see what does it say. But implicit in that is what does it not say? And if we practice a close, um, a closer reading of the text and a scrutiny of the text, we, we won't skip over things. We, we won't miss things. Um, for instance, um, uh, how many of us have heard that, uh, that in, in, in the millennium, the lion will lay down with the lamb? Right? You know, the Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't say lion and lamb. It says the wolf and the lamb. Now, you may think that that's a minor thing. Now, obviously, you're not going to degenerate into heresy because of that. But we've always heard that over and over and over again. And we just assume that that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't say lion and lamb. The Bible says wolf and the lamb. It says the lion will eat straw, but the wolf will lay down with the lamb. Now, aside from all the context of what that is meaning, my only point is this. In 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians, we have to remind ourselves, what does the text say? What does the text not say? Okay? I'm going to harp on that. Over, not just Thessalonians, but the Bible in general. I want, anyone to get, want us to get in the habit of a closer examination of the text. What does it say? And therefore, what does it not say? Um, if I were to title today's message, it would be, Houston, we've got a problem. And I looked that up. Anybody know where that came from? Apollo 13. Uh, apparently it was, it was attributed to one of the other astronauts, but apparently it was Jack Swigert, who there was some kind of, uh, I guess, mechanical or electrical problem in one of the modules or something. And, and that has become almost an iconic saying, isn't it? It's a cultural saying, Houston, we've got a problem. Um, and, and, and that is exactly what I think the church of Thessalonica would have said to Paul uh, is Paul, we, we got a problem. Um, one more time, the outline of Second Thessalonians is what? Chapter 1, where's, my, where's Ron? Where's my helper? Comfort. Chapter 1, they were concerned. What did they need to be comforted about? They were concerned about the fact that what's going to happen to those who have believed in Jesus who have died? Are they going to miss out on, on, on heaven and the second coming? And, and so he comforts them to knowing not only will they not miss out, but they will precede us. Uh, so he brings comfort to them. Number two is clarification. Chapter two was clarification. They were concerned that the day of the Lord had already come. There's no indication in the text that they felt like they had missed something. Again, what does the text say? Was it? They, they weren't concerned they missed the day of the Lord. They were concerned and confused because they had received a letter or they had received some kind of communication saying that the day of the Lord had already occurred. And so he clarifies what had to happen before the day of the Lord was to return. So, chapter 1, comfort. Chapter 2, clarification. Chapter 3, correction. So, now we're going to um, get into a section where he has to correct them. And, if, and in uh, chapter 3, verse 6, 
you'll notice that the correction is probably the smallest section in the entire book. This was an exceptional church, but it was not without its problems. Um, I remember, I don't hear it so much anymore, maybe because I'm just not in, in those kind of circles, but I remember a long time in the church there was this real emphasis to, to that, that the church needs to return to the first, like the, become more like the first century church. Well, anybody who says that hasn't read the New Testament. The first century church had a gaggle, yes, a gaggle of problems. They had a gaggle of doctrinal problems. Um, if you read 2 Corinthians 11 to the church in Corinth, he says, you know, Someone comes and they preach a different Jesus, they preach a different spirit, they preach a different gospel, and you accept it. Um, anybody who, who has never read the first three chapters of Revelation in the, in the letters to the seven churches, with the exception of the church in Philadelphia, every single one of those churches had a significant doctrinal issue that, he, that, that John had to correct, or that Jesus was correcting through John. So, so we, we have to get out of our mind that the first century church was this this pristine, perfect church. In fact, Paul was constantly battling. Almost as soon as he'd leave a town, the Judaizers would come in behind him and start spreading false doctrine and false belief. And he'd have to, he was constantly having to correct that. But the second thing that the early church deal, dealt with was not just uh, diff- or, or, or unbiblical doctrine, unbiblical beliefs, but unbiblical behavior. Again, read 1 Corinthians. What are some of the things that he had to correct? He had to actually say to the First Corinthians, "Okay, you got to stop doing this." Anybody offhand remember anything? You got to you got to cease with the sexual immorality. You got to stop. <laughs> he had to tell him. He had to actually say, "Okay, you got to stop sleeping around." Uh, now that you're a Christian, you got to you can't. In other words, you can't go to the temple anymore and engage in temple prostitution. You got to got to stop. Um, they 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 were a very progressive church. He he said uh, he talks about remember the 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 uh, the man who slept was sleeping with his his stepmother. Not only were they were they not con- uh, condemning that, they were condoning that. They thought how how, how progressive and and loving we are that, that this is going on. So okay, my point is this. Every, it seems like every single first century church had significant problems that they had to deal with. But if you look in the grand scheme of things, the church in Thessalonica really was, it seems relatively minor compared to the rest of the churches. But as we see, as we're going to see, this is going to be a difficult passage for us in 21st, we're 21st century, 21st century America. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Houston, we've got a problem. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is, what the, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working, they may eat their own food Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. 
And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him, so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. This is a sign in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Uh, Houston, we got a problem. What was the problem? Laziness. Now, if you were to put on a scale of sins in the church, where would you put lazy? All of us lazy people go way down, way, <laughs> way down there. <laughs> well, if, if, let's, let's look at the nature of this problem. Look with me again at verse 6. Uh, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. Now, what some of your tra- other translations say there? Mine says walks irresponsibly. He's idle. Disorderly, what behaves irresponsibly, leads an unruly life. See, see here, here's what's great. Here's what's great about living in this day and age with all these translations. Do you, do you see how you get a fuller understanding of the concept just by comparing translations? You don't need to know Greek. I, I, I tell you, just compare translations. Um, when you here's here's a rule of thumb. Whenever you compare English translations on a word, and when you see a wide variety, uh, a, a, you know, kind of a wide span of how they interpret it, that 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 leads you that should lead you to believe what that this is this this is it's hard to really nail down what this word is about. When when most translations will agree on a on a translation, then you know that they're pretty we're pretty certain of of what that word means. Okay, so. Com- Keep comparing translations. That this is more than just lazy. This is more than just they weren't making their bed in the morning, which you probably should do. Uh, uh, well, I don't. Vicky does. Uh, but I, I tend, I, you know. So it, it, it is. It is lazy. Um, but it, it. How does Paul describe it? Unruly, undisciplined, irresponsible. So it was more than just being a lazy person. In fact. Look at verse 11. We hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all. But here's the second aspect of it. What's the second aspect of it? Not that they were idle, not that they were not working, but what was the second aspect involved? Busy bodies. Yeah, now, some of our translations say this. They try to bring out the, the, the Greek and not busy, but busy bodies. Um, there is a play in words in the Greek that that translation tries to bring out. That's why it has busy, busy bodies. But it has to do with interfering in, in, in others' lives, interfering in, in, in other people's work. Now, I was try, I'm, I'm, for the life of me, I'm trying, I'm trying to imagine what that looked like. What actually is he addressing here? Um, some have suggested that, that what he's referring to here is an abuse of a Roman... Um, a part of Roman culture where they had what were called patrons and clients. And patrons were the more wealthy Roman citizens, and they would hire clients. And these clients would, would be uh, people that would just 
hang out. And they would usually help around the house. Usually, you know, they had, they, these people had big homes. By the way, the church in Corinth was probably met in the home of a patron. Uh, the, these were rather large homes, which would have accommodated would have accommodated churches. And, and the, the, to, I guess to overgeneralize or to sum up, a client these would be they would hire a group of people that would just kind of follow them around and kind of worship the ground they walk. It was a stat, It was a sign of of significance and status and power. And in turn for that, they would they would pay them by feeding them and housing them. Um, these were called clients. That was their job. I call it rent a friend. You know, you you, you kind of rent. You, you rented these people. You paid to follow you around. And the more clients a patron had, the more status that they would have in their in their culture. So some have suggested that that's what this was. That that's that somehow this is involved in this. That that these clients, uh, there were some maybe some patrons in the church in Thessalonica, and these clients were taking advantage uh, of of their patron. Um, does the text say no? Um, here's another thing that you're going to about the nature of this this uh, idleness that 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 I see all the time in commentaries and, and is this is that is because they believed the rapture was going to happen any moment they stopped going to work and they just stopped living responsibly. Now, is that a possibility? Sure. But they don't teach it as just a possibility. They say, that's what it is. The reason they were lazy, the reason they were idle, the reason they were being disruptive is that Jesus, they, they believed Jesus could come at any moment. And uh, so they quit their jobs and they were being lazy. I have no problem with someone saying, this may have been what it is. Because spec- I have no problem with speculation when it comes to Scripture. There are, there are times we have to speculate. Well, it could have been this, it could be that. I have no problem with speculation as long as we identify it as speculation and not that this is what the Bible teaches. Am I clear on, am I, where I'm coming from on that? I have no problem with someone saying, you know, it may have been a Roman client situation. It may have been that they, they in, 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 felt some kind of imminency and so they were being lazy and irresponsible. That's a possibility. But the text does not tell us. In fact, what, how does the text define this? It just it, it use, uh, Paul uses a word that's that's kind of hard to translate precisely into English. It's idle, lazy, dis, uh, uh, and they are being disruptive. So, so however we look at it, um, this was a disruptive influence in the church in Thessalonica, and the nature of this disruptive influence was they were not working. Now we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about this in terms of application. Um, but this text is going to probably raise more questions than it answers. This, this text is not, is not going to address retirement. In other words, is he referring to people who are retired, who aren't working, who are now because they're not working, they're just being busybodies? Is he referring to, to people who can't work? In other words, maybe there's a, they have some kind of disability and they are unable to work. Is he referring to that? Is, in fact, he referring to uh, people who just aren't making their bed in the morning? <laughs> um, it's gonna, it doesn't really address those issues. 
what we do have to, we have to look at what is it addressing for the church in Thessalonica. So the first thing we have to understand is that, that there, was a, there, there was a group of people who, for whatever reason, um, were in fact leading uh, irresponsible, unruly, undisciplined lives. Uh, turn back to me, back to First Thessalonians four again. I heard, a, I read, I read some this week that they said they weren't sure how Paul found out about this. Um, well, um, Paul probably saw it firsthand. If you look at First Corinthians or First Corinthians, First Thessalonians four. 11 and uh, actually 10 through 12. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia. We encourage you, brothers, to do so even more. To seek to lead a quiet life. To mind your own business. And to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. The, the reason he's addressing this is he saw it firsthand. If you remember when we went through the book of Acts and when he, uh, when, when Paul founded the church in Thessalonica, the book of Acts seems to, the, the, the impression we get is he was only there for a short period of time and then he moved on. Well, the, the, the two letters to the church in Thessalonica lead us to believe that he was there long enough to get a job. He was a tent maker. He got a job and he was working. And, and in the text we read, in fact, he said, we worked very hard day and night. Um, so he probably experienced this firsthand while he was in Thessalonica, and that's why he said in the first letter to them, listen, I want you to, 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 to work, be responsible, earn your own living. And apparently they, did, they, they didn't heed that, because Paul again says um, in verse uh, 12, or, or no, verse 6, they were, they were walking not according to the tradition received from us. In other words, the teaching they received from us, they're not obeying. Well, the teaching that they received from him was in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, which is what? Get a job. Go to work. So he's addressing this, this, this notion of irresponsibility, of, of um, uh, undisciplined, unruly life, and interfering in the work of others. Now, we're not sure what the nature of that was. One other thing. Turn to the, back to, again, 1 Thessalonians. Chapter five. I want you to I want you to understand kind of the context in which this letter would have been received. Twenty five, five twenty five. Brothers, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Verse twenty seven. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers. So I want you to imagine the church is gathered in the home of a patron in a home, and they didn't all have a copy of this letter. He didn't hand out the letter. What would they do? They would read it. <laughs> Guess who's in the congregation while well, he's reading what we now call Second Thessalonians? The unruly, the undisciplined. I, 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 I'm trying to picture this. When he's addressing them, did everybody kind of you know, turn and look at him? So again, this is something that would have been um, extremely uncomfortable. We read it, you know, and, uh, and it's hard enough for us in terms of what we're supposed to do with it. But imagine uh, the pastor or one of the elders getting up and reading this letter from Paul 
and in the congregation, present in the congregation of the very people that, he's, that, that, that are the problem that he's addressing. So the nature of the problem, they were being idle, they weren't working, they were, they were in fact living off the church, uh, the church was supporting them, having to support them, and so Paul finally steps in, and, uh, and in notice in verse 6, he says, this is what I command you. He didn't say, this is what I urge you, this is what I encourage you, which is often how Paul speaks. But here, he, he, as an apostle, he now says, now I command you. And, and he, he gives them, what's the solution? How are they to, to deal with this problem? He speaks to the congregation, and he says, how are they to deal with this problem? Look at me at verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to do what? Keep away from. This was a nautical term used to steer away from, to stay clear of. If there was a, if there was a rock in the water, you were, you were to steer clear of it. What does Paul say they were to do to respond to these people who were living undisciplined, unruly, disruptive lives? To stay away from. That, that's hard from us. In fact, look at 7 through 10. Paul says, For, here's the reason, for you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat any, anyone's food free of charge, which leads to what do we take from that? That's what they were doing. They were eating food without paying for it. They were living off the church. Yeah, mooching. Yeah, I like that. They were mooching. Instead, we labored and struggled. I'm sure if that was the word back then, Paul would have used it. Um, working night and day so we would not be a, what? Burden. So what were, the, what were these people to the church? They, they were being a burden to the church. They were unruly. They were undisciplined. They were eating. They were mooching off the church and they were a burden to the church. He says, we weren't a burden to you. Now, he, he, he steps back, he says, now, I'm not saying that I didn't have a right to receive support from you. He, he, he talks about that in other places in the New Testament. He says, but, it, but in this case, I worked because I wanted to, what? Be an example to you. So he knew when he first went, to, when the church was first formed, he knew these people were there. And so he went to work to be an example to them of what it means to work hard and to pay your own way. Verse 10, in fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. They weren't doing it. So he says, I want you to, number one, I want you to keep away from them. That's hard for us. In fact, it gets worse than that, or better, depending on how you look at it. Verse 12, Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working, they may eat their own food. Verse 14, But if anyone does not obey this instruction, take note of that person and do what? Don't associate with him. This same word is used in 1 Corinthians. Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians 5. I mentioned this earlier. This is 1 Corinthians 5. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you. 
And the kind of sexual immorality is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife. And you are inflated with pride instead of being filled with grief so that he who has committed this act might be removed from your congregation. Now look with me now down at verse 10. Or verse 9. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate. Same word. Not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But now I am writing not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. Drunkards, swindlers, sexually immoral, lazy. Don't eat. Don't associate with them. That's hard. What, 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 would, what would be our natural response? Let's be honest. We would overlook it. Well, maybe we talk about it when we get home. Right? We're good evangelicals. We don't ever, we don't ever deal with it. We just talk about it when we get home. Um, we tend to want to overlook those things. You know, yeah, we we we're upset by them. We don't like it, but we just tend to either overlook it or, um, what what else do we tend to do? Maybe we confront, right? There's no indication of that. He just simply says, "What? You, you, you don't associate with." The same thing, the same um, response that we are to have for those who are sexually immoral. It doesn't seem it it doesn't seem that that those two sins really are in the same category. Being lazy and disruptive, the response to that was supposed to be the same as those who were sexually immoral and, and 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 drunkards and greedy. Why might this be? Um, some have once said all sin is is exactly alike, and, and this may be, in fact, a reason why they would say that. That, that ultimately all sin is is an offense to God, and there is no, uh, there really is no difference in that respect. Obviously, there's differences on a human level, but in terms of in terms of sin, sin is sin, and and so maybe that's that's why he responds the way he does. But I think there's probably another reason. And, and I think that is the fact of the response or the impact that this is having on the body. Not just on the body, but on, in fact, their testimony. Again, look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Why would he say, don't associate with them? Now, this is more than just, uh, this is how you respond to lazy people. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I just read these a minute ago. Look at me at verse 11. To seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may walk properly in what? What does your text say after that? To those who are outside. Outside what? The church. Outside the faith. So he is saying that anything that, it, that, that promotes a bad testimony to the church needs to be dealt with. There needs to be a distancing. There needs to be a, 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 
severing of association. Not just for the fact of that person, because obviously other texts that we know in terms of church discipline, this is kind of informal church discipline. But brother, who's the, who's the responsibility placed on to do this? The elders? No. Everyone. Uh, so, so this is kind of informal. Now, Jesus laid out in Matthew 18 kind of a formal church discipline. Remember that if anyone's caught in a sin, you know, two or three witnesses, they don't listen to them, you bring to the church. and Okay, there, there's a process to protect people from, uh, you know, false accusations and so forth. But th- this is not really formal church discipline. This is, this is more just the church protecting itself from those who are bringing a bad testimony to the congregation as well as disrupting the congregation uh, by themselves. Even though it doesn't seem to be that bad, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, Paul responds the same way to it because of the impact it's having on their church. It is becoming a burden to the church. It is disrupting the church. But it's also a bad testimony to those outside the faith. So these are things that we need to remind ourselves because we as a church may not ever have someone who's lazy and not working and living. But really, it's, that was their problem. But what is our problem? Uh, not our in terms of crossroads, but contemporary church today. What is it that is being a burden on the church that is a bad testimony to the world? So the solution to the problem was a kind of steering away from, a moving away from, a a disassociating from. Um, But look with me again at verse 11. We hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working they may eat their own food. In other words, Paul is saying, uh, I, I want you to tell those people to get back to work. And they're probably sitting in in that congregation while they hear this. And then he talks about this is what will happen if nobody, if if they don't obey our instruction, stop associating with him. Number verse 15. Yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Here's the balance. He, He says, I want you to no longer associate with them. I want you to distance yourself from them, but I don't want you to go so far as to begin treating them as an enemy. In other words, there's still an element of love. There's still an element of concern. There's still an element that we want that person to to come back into fellowship. So that's that's the balance. We, we, the, the disassociation is not being mean to them. It's not being cruel to them. It, 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 is, it is, in fact, removing them from the, the benefits, removing them really from the privileges of fellowship to bring them back into the fold, to bring them back into obedience to, 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 to the Bible's commands. That's the ultimate goal, is restoration. Not to treat them as enemies, not to punish them, but to bring them back into the fold. Don't treat them as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. One other thing. Verse 13. Does this, does this seem out of place to you? It, it just seems so random. He's talking about um, we command people in the Lord to walk quietly, they may eat their own food. 
brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. It just seems so so random and so out of place. Here's what I think might be going on. Not only were they that they were to disassociate, but they were to warn them as brothers. They were to still love them, not treat them as enemies. But then he's also saying to them, here's how you respond. Don't let the fact that you've been burned by these people make you stop doing good things. Don't let the fact that these people have taken advantage of you mean that you stop giving and stop being generous and stop being loving. Continue to do those things. Don't allow the people that have burned you to prevent you and keep you from doing the things that you know you need to be doing. Even though they, some people have taken you and have taken advantage of you, don't stop doing good. So he gives really some, uh, some, some counterbalances to this disassociation. I want you to, to warn them as brothers. Don't treat them as, as enemies. Don't be mean. Don't be cruel. The ultimate goal is restoration. And please don't stop doing good. Don't stop being generous. Don't stop being loving. Don't stop help, to, to help meeting the needs of those in the church. Keep doing that. Don't allow these few who are abusing it to prevent you from doing that. Finally, verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with all of you. This greeting is in my own hand, Paul. This is my own hand, Paul. This is a sign in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Now, verses 17 and 18 have been lost to us because we don't have the original. But apparently, we see this, I believe, is in Galatians. It was, a, it was common for Paul, at the end of the letter, to write in literally with his own hand. And in Galatians, I think it is, he says, see with what large letters I write to you. Uh, Paul did this probably for a couple of reasons. Someone to authenticate the letter. It was kind of, it's kind of uh, signing it. <laughs> this is really from me. Uh, it, it was it was a it was an authentication. It was it was a, uh, Paul wanted them to know this was really me. Although Timothy or Silas has probably wrote it, I, I I dictated it. They wrote it. At the end, I'm going to add my hand to put the stamp of approval that everything written on here is mine. It's like signing a contract. You sign a contract, and everything above that is you agree, agree to that this is what you agree to. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. But what was the, what's his emphasis in verse 16? There's a word is repeated twice. Peace. What might what might we infer from that that the effect that this problem was having on the church? Strife, chaos. He said, above all, I want you to experience peace. I want you to for there to be peace. In fact, again, First Thessalonians five thirteen. Verse 12, Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. See, Paul's priority in the church was peace. Now, not peacekeeping, um, but peacemaking. Do you understand the difference? Peacekeeping is peace at all costs. I just want everybody to be happy and... That, that's, that's not always real healthy. But peacemaking is something differently. That I live and I do everything in a way that promotes peace, that promotes 
uh, togetherness that, that does not promote division, that does not promote strife. And this is exactly what the church in Thessalonica was beginning to experience. And he says, listen, I want you to be at peace among yourselves. And one of the ways you do that is you, for those of you that are leading in really lives, is you need to get back to work and you need to live responsible lives. And that means for the rest of you that you disassociate from them. But you don't, you don't treat them as enemies. You don't be mean and cruel to them. Our goal is to restore them. But in fact, the ultimate desire for Paul is that they might experience peace. Did they do it? We don't know. We don't know. Well, what's the the application to us? So the application is, let's see, everybody here is working, right? Well, except you retired folks. You're not working. And uh, we get back to work. It doesn't address that. I don't think it's, it's, it's not talking about that at all. Um, here's what I think we need to understand that for the, the church in Thessalonica this was the source of their contention this was the source of their um, burden this was the source of their irresponsibility so we have to ask ourselves what, what in, our, in, in the church today what are areas of irresponsibility that, that we see because he defines irresponsibility really as, as disobedience they're not walking according to my teaching. See, that's our application. We, 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 we don't just say, well, everybody here is at work. Everybody here has a job, so we're good. No, it's, it's are we walking in, in obedience? Number one, it, it implies a couple things, guys. It, it implies that someone is truly experiencing fellowship. Here's the problem with the modern-day church when it comes to this kind of thing. Whoop. Let's say one among us I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, Let's say Seth. (laughs) Begins leading an unruly, disruptive life. He begins mooching off us as a church. Uh, It's a trap. Uh, And uh, we say to him, hey, you know, we we, we just can't fellowship with you anymore. You can't come to home. I should probably use an adult. You can't come to home group anymore. We we just need we need, we need, need to part company for a while. What happens today if that happened to someone in a church? Let's say it's an adult, obviously. What happens? Yeah, they just go down the street to another church. They go, fine, I'll just go to another church. Yeah, um, see, see, this is difficult for us in 21st century church. Back then, this church was all they had. This was all they had. They had each other, and that's it, against them against the world, contra mundum against the world. And to be removed from fellowship meant something. It hurt. And it was supposed to hurt to bring them back into fellowship. But now the challenge is, uh, I'll just go to another. Even if someone is, is experiencing fellowship, true fellowship at a church, that any time that there needs to be some kind of, well, this kind of correction, Oh, no problem. Either I stop coming or I go to another church. So this implies, number one, that there's true fellowship. Number two, it implies that there's true fellowship. And what I mean by that, when you have a church of 1,500 people, how do you even know? How do you even know who's being unruly or undisciplined? You see, these things, these are challenges, uh, challenges to us in, in terms of 21st century evangelical church. Although, the, anybody know what the average size evangelical church is in America? 
Huh? Yeah, 70, 80. So most churches are smaller. And this is, by the way, a lot of reasons why many people do not join churches. Is accountability. We have a church covenant. And our church covenant addresses this kind of issue. See, because it's not just what we believe, and we affirmed that this morning, but it's how we live our lives. It's the testimony that we have, number one, with the outside world. Number two, it is, it is the, 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 the fellowship that we have and the agreement and the, the, uh, that we have with one another in terms of how we're going to live our lives. We, we have a church covenant that talks about how we are to behave and how we agree to behave. So this is the kind of thing that the church in Thessalonica struggled with. Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem with people who are living unruly, undisciplined lives, and we don't know what to do about it. And he says, I want you to remove them from fellowship. You you stop fellowshipping with them, but not from the standpoint of punishment, not from the standpoint of anger, not being mean and cruel, but to restore them to fellowship, restore them to obedience, that there might be peace in your congregation." That's his ultimate goal. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things for us. Uh, In a a culture of inclusiveness, uh, things like disassociation, steering away from, keeping away from, these seem harsh, they seem cruel, um, but they're not, obviously. Father, it is out of love and concern for those who are walking in disobedience um, that we do these things, that we are to do these things. And Father, admittedly, these things ought to be rare. These kind of steps are not the norm. Um, they, they are to be rare. And, and I'm thankful that in the history of, of Crossroads, we've never had to do this. But Father, we are, are, uh, we are aware of the fact that there may be times when this is necessary. So I pray for us as a church that we would be wise that we would be prudent, but we would also be obedient. And that when or if that ever occurs, we might indeed promote peace through following and obeying your word. Lord, thank you for these two books, as hard and as difficult as they have been at times. Um, we, we thank you that all the things that we've learned and all the things that we've wrestled with and, and thought through and had to deal with I pray that as a result, we might be stronger in our faith, more knowledgeable of your word, and therefore know you better. We thank you and we pray all these things in Christ's name.